0: To begin, and we're continuing our uh, lengthy series on foundations of the faith. Uh, this most recent one has to do with future things, as you know. And in prior weeks, we identified uh, what most of us believe to be, as we study the scriptures, the first prominent peak in God's prophetic mountain range. Uh, it's known as the rapture. And by constructing these mountains, it's our way of saying we think through careful Bible study. Uh, we can come to large agreement about the prominent features uh, of God's future plan, even though we may differ about the timing thereof or the details. So we may not know the distances Uh, in the valleys between these mountain peaks, but we surely can identify the prominent peaks. And so this evening, we're going to move on from the rapture and identify uh, what I think most of us again will agree is the second prominent peak in God's prophetic mountain range. And so, in order to find out what it is, could I call your attention to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 1. Here's what it says Paul, of course, is speaking, for we know that if the earthly tent, he was a tent maker, you know, so he's using this as a metaphor for. What do you think he means by the earthly tent? Yeah, it's our physical body, absolutely. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, uh, this happens, doesn't it? Uh, um, The aging process, sometimes the disease process process, and in Paul's case, sometimes the process of being persecuted and brutalized for the faith. So if the physical body is torn down, he says, we know we have a building from God, a house, and you see he's again speaking in metaphorical terms, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, So he's contrasting our physical body. Thank God for them. They get us from place to place. It's wonderful. But though they decay and oftentimes are diminished uh, with regard to mobility and usefulness, do not despair, says Paul, because we could look forward to our heavenly bodies, glorified and fit, unlike these, for eternity. And then he goes on to say, For indeed, in this house... This body, we groan. You know, if you're having a little bit of a difficult time living life, that's probably normal if you're a Christian. It just isn't smooth sailing for most of us. There's a measure of groaning while we occupy this physical dwelling. He says, we groan longing to be clothed, you see, with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. That is to say, vulnerable and susceptible uh, to the things that cause us to groan. We groan. There are aches, there are pains. Do you know in some churches, I guess, we don't have the permission to fess up to that and admit to it. You always have to, when someone asks you how you're doing, you always have to say something, well, untrue, like fine. <laughs> it may be fine once in a while, but generally speaking, it's a challenge. <laughs> There's a pruning process. We're being conformed to the image of Christ, He is excising from us all that which will have no place in the eternal kingdom. It's a cutting away of, of excess baggage. It's a, um, it's, a, um, it's a specifying of sin areas in our life. That's not fun to realize what we're made of. And so we groan. There are aches. There are physical pains. There are trials. There's testing. Tough times. But Paul says uh, our approach ought to be not to deny this, but rather to hope for the day when we will occupy grown-proof bodies, grown-less glorified heavenly bodies. They will not be naked, that is to say, vulnerable to the throes of this life. For indeed, says he, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, uh, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So Paul believed, as we speak about future things here, we indeed have a future. In fact, he intimates it's a glorious one. He says one day we will in fact be clothed in that which is fit for life. We don't look forward to a dying, a death. Oh no, the mortal will be swallowed up for Christians by life, eternal life. Furthermore, he says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Oh, I love that! It's that the first time in the Bible it says something like that? Listen, little fun exercise. Can you think of any evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? This is just private. Don't yell it out if you don't mind. Uh, Just think of something that you can clearly attribute to the Holy Spirit and only Him. One time I offered the illustration as a new Christian. Um, I used the Lord's name in vain on a basketball court. And I had done that really for most of my life. But on this particular occasion, soon after I became a Christian and uh, was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, oh my goodness, I felt astoundingly uncomfortable in doing the same thing I had done without any problem for years before that. Oh, and I found out, wow, God, you really did move in. I don't know how you squeezed your immense self in this little Jewish body, but oh, your spirit actually has made my body his abode. And so the conviction of sin for the first time noticeable conviction of sin was to me evidence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe other things, maybe a fresh understanding of the Bible. You might have read the Bible at one prior time in your life, but then you met the author of the Bible. You entered into a new relationship with him, and now what was dead letters and kind of a closed book? Now it's like a love letter to you. Now it takes on a dynamic. Now it's living and active. Now it applies to you. Now you feel like though everyone could read it, much of it when you read it is for you and you alone. See, that's an evidence of the Holy Spirit. So this is good news. If you see any such thing, a burden for a lost person, that has to be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Before you were regenerated and had the Holy Spirit, you could care less about lost people. You were one. An interest in the well-being of your local church. An interest in actually coming to it. Folks, about the last thing in the world I would want to do is go to some Baptist church before I was a Christian. Are you kidding me? Even now it's a bit of a challenge. (laughs) So, you see, these are marvelous evidences of of the Holy Spirit. All that to say, if you see any one of those, none of those are naturally generated. They're all divinely generated. That is an evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that's the pledge that God will fulfill just what Paul said. The Holy Spirit is your earnest money. You know, you're making a purchase on the house and they say, well, look, you know, to show this is a good faith offer, write out a check for $500 and you write out a check for $500 or whatever it is. And that just means you'll consummate the deal with the rest of it later on. Well, God sent the Holy Spirit kind of as, pardon the expression, as his earnest money, if you will, an indication of the fact that there will come a day, don't doubt it for one minute, even though we're groaning right now, don't get carried away with that. Don't get too absorbed with it. Uh, He gave us the Holy Spirit as an indication. If I made that deposit in your life, I tell you, there will be a day when I will consummate the deal. It'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll talk about it one of these days. So Paul says, oh, God did this. This is his purpose for us, though we groan in this physical body, uh, not to despair for one day we will occupy uh, bodies fit for eternal life. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Common sense, right? While we are at home, here, living in this physical body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Could you say amen to that? You see, and that's a sign of the Holy Spirit in you. Right there. You would rather vacate this physical body, this life, So as to go to be in the presence of Almighty God, a natural person has no such interest in doing that. So uh, as I read this, let's simplify things. There are only two possible locations for you if you're a Christian. One is at home in your physical body, and the other is absent from it and at home with the Lord. That's it. You're not floating around somewhere as some disembodied... I don't know why. There's no limbo. There's no intermediate. There's no... You is either here or you's there. That's it. Now, all this stuff affected Paul in a very practical way. What what, what Paul just gave us is called theology. And good theology is essential in order to make good application... He just gave us good theology, but that's not good enough. You don't just stop with good theology. Now you've got to do something about it. So here's that step. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, in light of all that Paul has told us in the preceding verses about this marvelous hope we have, in that though we groan now, we rejoice in the expectation of a glorious eternal. Body, when we're present with the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, says he, we also have as our ambition. What's yours? It ought to be this, if you're a Christian. Whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Life's complicated, right? This simplifies it. Here's the application if you are born anew. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether here at home with the body or absent from it to be pleasing to the Lord. So Paul made pleasing his Lord his goal in life, whether here or there, whether alive in Christ in this physical body or having passed on in Christ and now literally in his presence, his ambition was the same, to be pleasing to him. Why? Next verse tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.10, here's why. For we must all, it's not an option, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul found his motivation to live in such fashion that all he did was pleasing to Christ. He found his motivation to have that ambition from the sure and certain occurrence of this next future event. And I'm a little nervous because I got to make this stick. And I don't have a good track record. Let's see. Hang in there. What do you think? Thank you. Thank you for showing appreciation for little things. It is the judgment seat of Christ, and I believe that is the next significant prophetic event, the next significant future peaked experience for us to anticipate. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking what I did. I'm thinking, wait just a second. I'm rejoicing in that I'm saved. I thought I was saved from judgment. Now I'm reading in the Bible about this event, which I am obligated to be at, for we, Christians, must all show up. And I'm thinking, uh, I've read about the grace of God, and now you're talking to me about the judgment of God, and it's like oil and water. I can't get the two to be harmonized. What do you mean judgment seat of Christ as Paul speaks of it? Ah, it is not judgment with respect to our sin. It is judgment with respect to our service. Why is it not judgment with respect to our sin? because that already took place when all of it was laid on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ as our sin substitute. There is another judgment for sin. It's going to take place uh, at a place called the Great White Throne. I'm not going to be there, and neither are most of you who are Christians. That's the judgment that those who have rejected Christ face. That's a judgment for sin. This one, the judgment seat of Christ, is not that. It's a judgment for our service as saved people. Our salvation experience, if we're in Christ, is done. The deal is sealed. The Holy Spirit is given as a down payment of it all. Please don't doubt your salvation. But now that we're saved people, He's going to evaluate us as our Savior according to the deeds done in the body. So, we are not saved by good works, but we are indeed saved for the doing of good works. And the extent to which we did those things expected of us is the issue at hand at the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before it. And the we, I think you can see as we've examined the context, those are Christians. That's who Paul is speaking of, not anybody else. So our salvation has already been settled, determined by faith placed in the finished, that means complete, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. But our deeds in the body determine the rewards which we will receive from him. This takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. And this, I believe, takes place immediately after the rapture. So that's why I posted it on the second mountain peak. So let me call your attention to Luke chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. And he, that's the Lord, also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid, look, at the resurrection of the righteous. Ah! Uh. So rewards for deeds well done is associated with the resurrection of the righteous. And this resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, is associated with the rapture. There's another resurrection to come. That one is not for redeemed people. That is for unredeemed people at the great white throne. But the resurrection of the righteous is exactly what happens when we are raptured so as to meet the Lord in the air. So based on this passage and frankly many more, uh, I surmise that the judgment seat of Christ takes place immediately after the rapture. We Christians will appear before Uh, our Lord, to be judged. Again, not with respect to our salvation, but according to how we lived our lives as saved people. Now, the readers to whom Paul wrote understood what he meant when he used the phrase judgment seat, because in their language, it was just one word, and this is the word, bima. That's the word they were familiar with for the Put up Bema on the screen if you're up there in the booth. There you go, thanks. Sometimes you got to wake those people up. Because they have two screens, and on the other, they're watching American Idol. I know, what I know what they're doing. It's okay. They have to stand before the judgment seat for that. I'm cool with that. So Bema is an important word. So he didn't actually say judgment seat. He said Bima we transport it into our language and we get two words out of the one, judgment seat. But Bema really communicated. It was a very familiar term to these first century recipients of Paul's letter uh, because it was a reference to a very prominent feature in Greek and Roman athletic arenas in stadiums of the day. There would be thousands of seats, you know, like in the Colosseum or something like that. But there would be one architectural feature that stood out. It would be a seat elevated on a raised platform, usually above all the rest, but certainly placed somewhere in the stadium so that the one who occupied that seat would have a clear and unobstructed view of what was going on. It was the judge of the athletic contest, so there'd be participants in a race. Athletes. This was a big deal in the ancient world. They'd all be running. And the one who was going to judge how the runners performed had to have, you can understand this, a clear and unobstructed view. And he did from his seat on the bima. It's the bima seat. And what he would do is give an award to those who performed well, a kind of a crown, a laurel wreath. But it was very interesting what the judge from the bima seat would do. He would reward... Good performance, but he wouldn't whip the losers. You see? It's a place of the dissemination of rewards, not the application of punishment. And in the same fashion, the ultimate judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits high and lifted up, and who has for sure the clearest and most unobstructed view of all, observes how each of us as his sons and daughters, are running the race of life, and he will one day at the judgment seat dispense to us rewards based on good performance in running the race of the Christian life. But he will not punish us at the judgment seat for bad performance. Why not? He already punished his son for all of our transgressions. You don't have to add to the excruciating sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. You see? So therefore, this is a place of the dissemination of rewards, not the application of punishment. But this does not mean we should minimize our appearance at the judgment seat. It's quite serious. We Christians must all appear there. In fact, the word appear actually in the original language means to be revealed. Look, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. But there have been times in our lives, mine, yours, when we're engaged in behavior, we're keeping secret. We don't want people to know about it. Because we know it's wrong. It's outside the will of God. So we don't want certain things we do misbehaviors, transgressions, acts of disobedience, clandestine relationships, things we watch, things we drink. I don't know. We would really rather keep that secret, lest anyone hold it against us. So we mask it, for we don't want it to be revealed. But the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ means it will all be revealed. What does that mean? A time of excruciating public humiliation when everyone there, all Christians worldwide, get to know every single secret sin about us? No. Please give God some credit. It's not that all of our secret sins are there to be rehearsed before everyone else. They don't have to be all that will happen is we'll look into the eyes of our holy God, King of kings, before whom every knee shall bow. And he'll look gently and lovingly to us. And he will exude all the glory of his attributes and perfections. And even without a word, just in his presence, all that we have tried so hard to keep to ourselves, to keep secret, this double life, this... This hypocrisy which kills us and which quenches the spirit suddenly, suddenly in an instant looking to him as a reflection, as a mirror suddenly it'll all be revealed, it'll be clear make no mistake about it and because of this terrible thing this terrible realization I've squandered the time he gave me I I lived beneath the calling as a royal priest, a holy priest. I did things which no one knew about. Oh, but the judge on the Bemis seat knows it all. Oh, I see how it grieves him because it, it could have been so much better for me. And it would have brought so much more honor to him. If I didn't, if I didn't have this inconsistency in the parts, the pieces. You have the public piece as a Christian. You have the private piece, and integrity means that the pieces fit together. There's nothing inconsistent. People who know you in public will know you the same way in private. There's no secrets. There's nothing in your closet, on your TV, in your computer, in your refrigerator. When you go on a business trip, every, you know you, there's nothing to be ashamed. You're not. There's harmony in the parts. Suddenly, you stand before him and you realize he who has it together, perfect harmony in all his ways, what he says he will do, nothing inconsistent. Suddenly, you realize in comparison, oh, he called me to be holy as he is holy. I accepted the calling but didn't live up to it. So, on the one hand, I don't want to minimize what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're saved, you're saved forever but it's a very very serious appointment with almighty god and for this reason though there we will not be judged with respect to our salvation for this reason the apostle john wrote this in 1 john 2:28 now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence And not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Not if he appears when. He is coming for us. It's the rapture. It's the first mountain peak of future prophetic events. And we will respond at that time to his coming in one of two ways. With confidence or shame. Confidence. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is worth it all to see you and to be with you, to be taken with you forevermore. Figuratively speaking, you could look him in the eye. You could stand up straight, shoulders back. Or the other option is to shrink away from him in shame. Oh, God, I know you love me but I'm so ashamed. Oh, God. And there's no other chance to redo it. Lost opportunities, money squandered on things that don't count for eternity. The eye gate focused on things we should not be watching. Lottery, gambling, certain movies, most movies. um, Substances. We'll shrink away from him in shame. There's only two options at this time, confidence or shame. And he loves us. That's why John refers to us as little children. The judgment seat is not a time when the Lord Jesus Christ sits as a judge with an angry scowl, a wrinkled brow with a gavel about to go down. Oh, no, it is finished. And the verdict rendered is paid in full. Jesus paid it all, don't you see? But at this time, it isn't quite like that. It's this beneficent, loving God who withheld not even his own life to conform us to his own image and who loves us and welcomes us into his eternal kingdom, thus calling us little children. And the pain we will experience is that we violated the law of love. We disobeyed the one who loves us most we're not fearing punishment but when it comes to the dissemination of rewards we will forfeit them what specifically eh, too much for tonight we'll, we'll 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 talk about it next week well what, what what are they like but but let me just point out now when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ we will be evaluated according to this thing this phrase that uh, That John inserted in the verse we just looked at. It has to do with abiding in him in this life. He will evaluate us then uh, to the extent in which we abided in him in this life. And what does that mean? It means to live in the atmosphere of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means to take him in, it means to breathe him in, it means to be mindful of him. It means to run to him and not to seek to run away from him. It means to cling to him. It means to depend on him. It means to be devoted in him. It means to ask, what would this Jesus have me do? That's what it means to abide in him. It means to draw in this life on his life as the very breath of life. It means to so cling to him that his life shapes ours. We begin to look more like him, God and son, God and daughter. It means a relationship of dependence. It doesn't mean self-reliance. It doesn't mean believe in yourself nonsense. It means To be emptied of self so as to be filled by the very spirit of Jesus Christ. It means to say, oh, my adequacy is from above. It means to cling to him in a relationship of intimacy. And that, the extent to which we have lived that way, is the basis of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards gained or rewards lost. I know we are saved freely by faith in Christ. I hope you know that. But we will be evaluated to the extent to which we live a Christ-dependent life. So faithfulness to abide in, to depend on, to draw from, and to obey the Lord. Governors have uh, mistresses and... Politicians lie to get elected, and the Home and Garden show has same-sex people living as life partners, prime time for our kids to watch. And we become anesthetized to the wrongness of it all. They look happy. They're not hurting anyone. Yes, they're destroying their souls. They're extinguishing the very image of God with which they were created. It's deicide. They're killing the God image in them. Don't tell me they're not hurting anyone. And they're diluting God's holy standards by which he wants us to live. I know we're not saved by works. I I know we're freely saved by... Faith, but we'll be judged at the judgment seat according to the extent to which we lived a Christ-dependent life and obeyed him. So will we be confident when he raptures us of rewards to be received, or will we shrink away from him in shame at his coming as if we've been found out? Now look, I don't want to end here (laughs) because I don't like it. I don't like it for you, and I don't like it for me. And I don't have to end here, because this judgment seat is not the end. Oh, no, 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 look, 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 we've got a lot to go. So if you would allow me, because I don't want to ruin your day. Could, could, could we move just a little further into the future? And, and could I tell you that though, yes, indeed, we may very, very well experience shame at the judgment seat, of Christ. And though we may very well forfeit rewards, he would otherwise be so pleased to give us uh, th- that ha- unhappy, and it will be a, a quite a profoundly unhappy experience. I must tell you it would be it'll be short lived. Revelation chapter 21. So we are really going way, way. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Listen. Then John says this I saw, he saw was a vision, you see, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Yay! You know, I'm not worried about global warning, which I believe is a fraud. <laughs> I'm worrying about moral pollution. Doggone it. It's not the air we breathe. It's a defilement we breathe out. That is the most unscientific scare that's been foisted upon humankind. It's nonsense. That is not the threat. You are the threat, and so am I. We pollute the environment. We do, by the lives we live. So he said, oh, no, no, I, the, I, the first heaven and the first, they're not going to melt in global warning. God's going to get rid of them so as to replace them with new stuff in which there is no longer any sea, sea, darkness, mystery. It divides, no such thing. And I saw the holy city. I got to tell you, folks, it isn't Pearland. <laughs> New Jerusalem. People want it to be divided up now. Well, God will have no part. New Jerusalem <sighs> will be real estate possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. and He ain't dividing it up with anybody. It'll come down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be, in the very true sense of the word, his people, and God himself will be among them. And he... He will not have his angels do this. He personally will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's the source of it? Lots of things. I think part of it is what happens at the judgment seat. We'll weep. Oh, we'll say. I should have given more. I should have prayed more. I should have read the Bible more instead of books about the Bible. I should have trusted him more. We'll cry. Oh, I should have trusted you more. Oh, I should have told more people about you. We'll cry. But it'll be short-lived. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. I don't know what that's like, and neither do you. It's such a profound, piercing, and painful reality. Some here have just had to say goodbye to loved ones. It hurts. Can you imagine a a reality, a new reality in which death, which is so very present in our midst today, it's not there. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. A groan-free existence why the first things all of these things this world will have passed away so folks although we as Christians surely must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so as to be evaluated for deeds which we have done in while in this physical body though we will there experience some measure of regret we will also quickly realize once again, what is ahead for us in the heavenly life, which we will enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ forever, and we will rejoice. Therefore, to repeat Paul's words in Second Corinthians 5, 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, make it yours. I'm trying to make it mine. We could help each other. Let's make it our ambition, whether at home, here, here, in this body, or the Lord calls us out of this body to him, or absent from this body. Let's make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. Therefore, since even this will give way, be absorbed with the intense eternal bliss of being in the very presence of almighty God, Forevermore, never to be separated from him again. Therefore, let's make it our ambition now to do better in pleasing him. I love this song, it invites commitment again and again, all to Jesus. I surrender. All to him. Would you stand with me? As you can see, we're fixing to sing this. All to Jesus I surrender. Listen, listen. I, I, would, would you mind if we sing this? This will be our last um, ingredient tonight. But I wonder if you would be willing to sing it um, by way of renewed commitment uh, to Second Corinthians 5.9. Therefore, whether at home or absent, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. Would you let this musical uh, device uh, be your opportunity to say, oh God, I will resolve the inconsistency between my public persona and my private life. Oh God, I'm going home to burn those magazines. Oh God, I'm doing things differently. Oh, God, I'm going to get help with my uh, pattern of sin that I'm in bondage to now. I need some help. Oh, God, I want to live a holy life for that is what you called me to do. Because, oh, God, I want to be confident and not ashamed at your coming. Would you let the words of this very wonderful hymn be your invitation to make that renewed heart commitment. Sing it with me. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, freely I will ever trust in Him day. I surrender all. I surrender all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And so may it be your ambition and mine whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. My fellow brothers and sisters, little children of almighty...